You can open up your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, that is uh, what we will be considering this morning. We will be continuing in our series on Philippians. We are drawing near to its conclusion. It's almost been a year. Maybe we can hold out for the year mark. (laughs) But here it is, uh, Philippians chapter 4 is where we'll be reading our text from this morning. Now, as Paul begins to draw his letter here to a conclusion, he concludes this letter with on a note of rejoicing. He says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me, that theme of joy, rejoicing that we have seen, which is so common throughout the entire epistle. Now, finds his climax here as he's going to start thanking uh, this church for their gift that they sent through Epaphroditus to him while he was in prison. Now this comes full circle where we find in chapter 1 verse 3 to 5, Paul wrote, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. And he says, with, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So that's where he started the letter in his prayer of thanksgiving with joy because of their partnership, and he's going to bring that to a conclusion here in this last section of this letter. Now we will consider this final section in two sermons. Uh, Today we will concentrate on contentment, uh, which is climaxing with a statement found in verse 11, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Perhaps you have I've seen that on bumper stickers or little cards on your fridges, and perhaps you have memorized that verse for yourself. Um, and here we'll find it in this text, and we'll take a look at what that means. And next time we will consider the, uh, the context of generosity, which is focusing on another bumper sticker phrase in front of verse 19, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And two very famous statements that is known to all of us from Philippians. Now, both of these verses are popular statements, and they are usually taken out of context. In these two sermons, we will look at these two statements and consider them in their context and what promises they hold out for us as God's people. They do hold out promises indeed. This morning, we will be looking at just verses 10 through 13, so you can look at your copies of God's Word as we read together. And this is the word of the Lord. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In every and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Let us pray. Father, grant us now in this little section uh, to take comfort from what Paul had learned in his own ministry, that a secret jewel or rare jewel, as Jeremiah Burroughs stated, of Christian contentment. Help us to learn contentment through your word. Teach us, O Lord, and the means by which we can attain it. And I pray, dear God, that you will show favor upon your people here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. 
It is alleged that John D. Rockefeller was once asked how much money will make a man happy. To which he gave the famous reply, just one more dollar. Now, we can't verify whether or not he ever said this statement or this conversation ever happened, but we do know that the sentiment rings true. We often wonder if we would be happier if we just had a little bit more. Now, you can fill in your own blank of what that more is, just a little bit more money, just a little bit more muscle, just a little bit more height, just a little bit more pleasure, and my personal favorite, just a little bit more time. <laughs> right? The reality is we as humans struggle to find contentment. And why is this so? Well, the primary reason is because we are mutable beings and live in a mutable environment. We change daily. Our circumstances change frequently. And the world is constantly changing around us. And then we try to manage all this change by thinking we can control it. And this is where the major problem lies. We just cannot. We find ourselves often to be out of control. And as a result of that, trying to manipulate and control our circumstances and then being out of control, we grow discontent. Though we might find contentment for short periods in life, when all the changes in ourselves and in our environment converge to form a state of equilibrium for a season, producing in us happiness in that time, soon the changes will bring distortion and imbalance to our lives again, and we find ourselves discontent. This is how we are. That's the human experience. Now, the Apostle Paul experienced change. He writes here in a passage that he knew how to be brought low and how to abound, facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. These are constant changes. And then he writes this remarkable phrase in verse 11, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Perhaps this morning we can lean in and learn a few lessons from the Apostle Paul's life to teach us how to gain contentment in an ever-changing world. Our title for this morning is The Joy of Christian Contentment, and we'll consider our passage in three parts. Firstly, we will look at the value of Christian friendship. Secondly, the frowning smile of providence. And then thirdly, the virtue of Christian faith. The value of Christian friendship, the frowning smile of providence, and the virtue of Christian faith. Let's look at the first of these, the value of Christian friendship. Paul begins the section in verse 10. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Now this statement, together with verse 11, has puzzled some commentators. It seems a little clumsy. As if Paul is being a little sarcastic, kind of like he's saying, Ah, finally you have revived your concern for me. What took you so long? I'm here in prison. Don't you realize I needed your help long ago? And that is how some view that Paul's saying. That's what some think he's saying here. But when we see how Paul uses language carefully, as he always does, 
we find that he's actually addressing them as friends. The word used twice translated here, concern, is the same word that Paul used of himself towards them in chapter 1 verse 7 when he wrote, It is right for me to feel the same word this way about you because I hold you in my heart. Concern. If we want to carry over the metaphor, it is as if Paul is saying to them in 1 verse 7 that he has always had them on his mind. And now, and here in 4 verse 10, that he knows that he's always been on their minds. It conveys a deeper sense of friendship between Paul and the Philippian Christians. Concern for the other. And this is demonstrated by them coming to Paul in his hour of need while in prison when they were enabled to. Paul knew that all through this time, while he was waiting, and perhaps he had gone hungry for a period of time, as he has stated here, that he has learned this in hunger as well, but he knew that this church has cared for him from the gospel, from the beginning of it, even until now, he knew that their concern was for him. And here, when Epaphroditus arrived with the gift, that feeling of concern was revived once again in him. He knew it. You see, the letter here in Philippian church carries many of these friendship marks that we see littered right throughout the letter. In fact, it's very common in ancient letter writing. Friendship marks are found within letters, and this is a, as commentators will show that this Philippians letter, as we saw in the introduction when we did our first sermon, is marked by friendship. It is incredibly personal. But then the question is, why does he seem to be minimalizing their gift in verse 11? You see, he writes there in verse 11, all of a sudden that he transitions and he says, you are indeed concerned for me, but not that I'm speaking of being in need. It's like he's minimizing the actual need that he had. I mean, friends don't do this to one another, right? Saying you received a gift and saying, well, I didn't really need it. You know, so this confuses people as well. What is he trying to do? Well, it helps us to understand a little bit about the friendship narratives in the ancient world. In the Greco-Roman world, friendship was discussed at length and valued tremendously, much more than in our very individualistic-minded Western world. There were three categories of friendship commonly discussed among the philosophers. A, friendships based upon common principle and virtue which yielded mutual trust and allegiance. B, Friendship based on common interests and thus enjoyed primarily for pleasure. For example, friends that go and play golf together in a common interest in golf. And C, friendship based on need and for pure utilitarian purposes. Just basic need. Now this last category was most disdained among the ancient philosophers. And the first was most praised. Friendship based upon common virtue. The philosophers really had a lot to say about people that really just used one another to gain out of friendship, right? They hated that. But yet, if you were friends because you have a common purpose, a common value, a common goal in life, and through that a deep friendship was cultivated that transcended the needs for one another, but endured despite the needs. You care for each other despite having you know, maybe some disagreements over time. It was just we have a common goal in life that was most to be praised. 
It was a friendship that is to look for the other one rather than for myself. Totally selfless friendship. Aristotle wrote on the, at length about friendship, and he writes this, Perfect friendship is the friendship of men who are good, in other words, virtuous, and alike in virtue. For these wish well alike to one another. They wish each other well. Now those who wish well to their friends for their sake are most truly friends. True friendship, says Aristotle, are those who love the other for their sake, who seek the good in them for their sake, not for my sake. That is what is most to be praised. So what Paul then is doing here in verse 11 isn't showing ingratitude for their gift by minimalizing his need, but rather he is trying to show in the most extreme ways possible that his friendship with them is not merely based on need. It's not utilitarian. What he has demonstrated throughout the letter is that their friendship is grounded in a common cause, and that is in the gospel. This is why he is affectionate in his affectionate opening in chapters 1, verse 3 to 5. His, his prayer that is centered around their common friendship in the gospel. Take a look at that if you can flip back to chapter 1, and we'll read verses 3 to 5. Paul says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. And he says, because of your partnership or fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. And you see, this partnership or the word fellowship is even more so grounded in the gospel and from that produced a friendship that yielded loyalty between the Paul and the Philippian church as they battled together for the gospel in the world. This is what Paul's saying. He's saying, I don't have this need that you need to reach out for. It is not because of your gift that I am friends with you or that I minister to you. It is because we have this common purpose. And this is where Paul will go in verses 14 of chapter 4. He says once again of them that it was kind of you to share my troubles. You see that personal aspect. And then in verse 15, commends them for being the only church who entered into partnership with him. Quite literally, once again, entered into fellowship in his sufferings as well as in advance of the gospel with him. Very intimate terms. So before Paul gets to the point of wanting to thank them for their gift, which is going to be verses 14 through 19, looking at their generosity towards him, he wants them to understand that their friendship is not grounded on his personal need. He loves them for their sake. That's why he fought for the gospel for their sake. Remember back in chapter 1, once again, you can flip there with me, when Paul said that he is seeking to advance the gospel over the world, and even here in prison, the gospel has been advancing. But then he said that, that even in midst them, they're here in life and in death, he lives for Christ. That's what he said in verse 21, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. And then he goes on to say that if he was not going to be executed in Rome, and he will continue to live in the flesh, that he means for it to be fruitful labor towards them, the furtherance of their faith. You see, this is the essence of true friendship. Paul seeks their good for their sake, not because he's receiving anything from them. He didn't receive anything from anyone else. The Corinthian churches, the churches in Ephesus, but yet he still fought for the gospel for them. 
And he wanted this church to know that though they were generous towards him, it was not because of that generosity that he loves them and cares for them. I want to say a few things about the value of Christian friendship as a result of this. You can recall that perhaps this is how I opened the series on Philippians almost a year ago. And now I return to the subject at the close of the series. It's such an important subject. I had quoted from C.S. Lewis's chapter on friendship in his The Four Loves and shown how true friendship, even in his time during the 50s, had fallen in real hard times. Lewis wrote that few value it because few experience it. Isn't that sad? Few experience the kind of friendship that someone loves you for your sake. Not for what you provide for them or how you make them feel, but for them. And in this letter, Paul had urged the Philippian church to keep and continue to develop deep friendships among one another. It wasn't just friendships, though. You know, friendships and enjoyment and pleasures like playing golf or tennis or, or cards, but real grounded friendships in the gospel that seeks the good of one another despite of how they make you feel. We see this language right throughout the letter. The language is in 1 verse 27, which is uh, classic. You could find this even in Aristotle or Caesarea, where Paul writes, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. He's urging them to partner together, to fellowship with one another, to have unity with one another as friends. And then the theme continues in chapter 2, climaxing in verse 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. This is what Aristotle describes as perfect friendship. Friendship that is grounded in a common purpose and seeks the common good for the other, for their sakes, not our own. Unfortunately, Most friendships in our present world are friendships of utility. What I can get from someone. Friendship centered on me and what I may gain from this relationship. Some friendships are friendships of pleasure based upon common interests, like cards, tennis, etc. But few, very few, are friendships of virtue. Very few people experience what Aristotle refers to as a perfect friendship. And this is sad. But Paul is urging these Philippians to be like that to one another. And why? Because Christ has called us friends. (laughs) If we have the Spirit of Christ and we live... As regenerated Christians and we have been brought into the new covenant by faith, we have been made friends of Christ. This is exactly how he refers to his disciples in John 15. I no longer call you servants, for as servants do not know the master's business, but I call you friends. (laughs) And Paul knew that Christ had made him a friend. 
It is out of this relationship that Paul ministered to others. The friendship that he had and shared with Christ, the koinonia, the fellowship that one John writes of, that he wants everyone to experience, to join in this fellowship that we share with the Father and the Son. And it's this friendship that is the grounds for Paul's contentment. This is where he starts. You see, it's not that he has mustered up the courage in himself through the practice of virtue to overcome his circumstances, but he knows he has friends in high places, a friend who will, as we will see, supply his every need. That's why I can tell to the Philippians, I didn't have a need. I didn't have anything that's not supplied to me by Christ. And the same is true for a Christian. Perhaps there's someone here this morning that says, man, I've never experienced genuine friendship. I feel empty. I feel sad. I feel hollow. Well, you know, there's a friend that sticks closer than a brother. And that's Jesus. And I know it sounds so cliche. But the reason why he, steps, he sticks closer than a brother is because he is near, as Paul said earlier in the letter to Philippians in chapter 4. That's why we can come to him with our prayers and supplications. And he dispels our anxieties by his presence, with his peace. And now Paul lives for the good of Christ in the lives of people, those who Paul, Christ has chosen. And so should we. Secondly, the frowning smile of providence. The frowning smile of providence. A person might point out that Paul was in prison on account of Christ. What kind of a friend is Jesus if he takes you to prison, right? You know? I mean, what kind of a friend is Jesus if he expects you to even die for him? It sounds more like a tyrant than it does a friend. Well, once again, one of the last conversations that Jesus had with his disciples before he endured the cross is found in John 15, verse 12 to 17. I've just referenced that. But here Jesus gives his disciples the final instructions. And these instructions are grounded in the nature of authentic friendship. It's once again, it's back to friendship with Jesus. This is what Jesus says. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. That's what Jesus says to his disciples, his final words. And then he says, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends. If you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. In a world that doesn't experience true and authentic friendship, Jesus commands his disciples to Love one another. By this, all, by this all men will know that you are my disciples, that you do what? Love one another. It is what makes a Christian community an authentic Christian community. 
And this is Jesus' last wish for these disciples before he lays down his own life for them. You see, Jesus demonstrated his friendship with his disciples through his sacrificial death on their behalf. And this is exactly what Philippians chapter 2 describes. Have this mind among yourselves, writes Paul in Philippians 2 verse 5, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. And then being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is no tyrant. He could have stayed in the glories of heaven and he could have commanded the rocks to die in our place if he wanted to. He could have sent an angel in his place. He could have had us continue sacrificing animals for eternity. But he didn't do that. He left the glories of heaven and he took on human flesh. And in that human flesh, he subjected himself to death for his friends. <laughs> this is how he loves. And Jesus' self-sacrificial death became the paradigm upon which true and authentic Christian friendship is grounded. Not only are Jesus' disciples called to love one another in the same way he has loved us, but his disciples will be called to suffer in the same way he suffered. This is why Jesus continues with John 15, verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. And Paul understood this aspect of the path of discipleship, and he embraced it with joy. He considered, he tells the Philippians, he considered it a privilege when we suffer on behalf of Christ. But not only did he embrace his suffering with joy, Paul was convinced that Jesus, being a faithful and true friend, was seeking his good in every circumstance that he placed Paul in, and that strengthening him to stand firm under these trials. He knew this was Jesus doing this work. If I'm here, if I'm in this situation, it's because Christ has placed me here, and you know what? He is working out everything for my good. That's what he wrote in Romans 8. This is how Paul learned in whatever situation he was in to be content. We learn contentment in our circumstances when we know that our very good is at the heart of our faithful friend who has first given his life to redeem us from our sin. If he's given his life and shed his blood to cover you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness first, if that's the place that he starts, is he not going to do all things to make sure that you reach glory? Is he not doing all things for your good? This was the certain confidence of William Cooper, who had been afflicted with dark depression most of his life. And he wrote this wonderful hymn, Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. 
His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Now, Paul didn't minimize his situation. He understood it in the light of God's providential care for his children. He wrote, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Whether Paul was seated at the table of kings or whether he was scrounging around for scraps in a Roman dungeon, he was convinced of the truth of God's providence. He's a Jew, after all. He has the story of Joseph, right? Who himself was sold into slavery and then from that went into, through false accusations into prison and eventually sat at the tables of kings. But through all of it, Joseph knew that God himself was in control and his God is good and he's going to work out a good end. Now, this didn't make the situation easy. I'm sure of that. I mean, Paul himself in chapter 1 there um, describes his situation that he hopes, in verse 20, it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now as always Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. My hope, it's still difficult. But yet he knows his faithful friend has given him this for his good and for the glory of Christ and the gospel. One of my favorite catechisms, and I'm sure I've mentioned it many a times, is the Heidelberg Catechism, question one. I want you to consider this question. The question is, what is your only comfort in life and death? What is your only comfort in life and death? And the answer states that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. I belong to him. And then it goes on to describe the benefits of belonging to Christ. Listen to these benefits. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. <laughs> That's Romans 8. That's Paul, sitting in a Roman dungeon, convinced that all things must work together for the good of those who love Christ and are called according to his purposes. And this is why Paul can write, while chained to a Roman guard in a Roman prison, awaiting possible execution on account of Christ, not that I must be being, speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. It was for the purposes of Christ and the gospel that Paul was placed in prison. As he wrote in 1 verse 12, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial God and to all the rest of my imprisonment is for Christ. It served that purpose, even here in prison. But he also knows it's working out for his salvation. It's working for his good. 
And that can be a really bitter pill to swallow sometimes. Man. I just pray that we gain a great deal of confidence in the frowning smile of providence that turns every circumstance, whether it be in plenty or in need, whether it be in prison or at the table of kings, whether it be in the first century or the 21st century, whether it be at the knife of Isis, or whether it be in the comfort of your suburban home and the struggles you face of loneliness or perhaps despair or perhaps circumstances that are not going your way. Regardless of where we are placed in the situation we are in, we I pray that we will find the comfort and confidence that Christ is with us and place us there for our good and his purpose. But for that, we need faith. <laughs> and as we return to thirdly, the virtue of Christian faith. See, in the ancient world, one of the chief means to gain contentment was living a virtuous life. The ability to restrain the passions and so accept our circumstances with prudence, justice, temperance, and fortitude was considered by the ancient philosophers to lead to the perfect life because we were able then to control not the circumstances but ourselves, our responses to those circumstances. That's what the Stoic philosophers always wrote, Marcus Aurelius or Cicero or others. And it's even carried over in more modern writings, like, for example, in M. Scott Peck's famous The Road Less Traveled. It's interesting that in The Road Less Traveled, he opens up with a statement, life is difficult. <laughs> yeah, that's his opening line. Full stop, next paragraph. Life is difficult. He wants you to get that. And then he says this. This is a great truth, one of the greatest truths. It is a great truth because once we truly see this truth, we can transcend it. Once we truly know that life is difficult, once we truly understand and accept it, then life is no longer difficult. I don't know. I kind of know life is difficult, and it is still difficult. You know, <laughs> I get it. I get it, Scott. But for me, life continues to be difficult, right? I don't just transcend the difficulty of it. Obviously, he's written a whole book in answer to that statement. But for Peck, the acceptance of the fact that life is difficult leads us to seek solutions rather than complain about the problem. That's what he's going to get to. When we understand it, we want to know, all right, how can I solve this? Rather than just sit around complaining about it. But the problem with the ancient philosophers and with Peck's thesis is that it still places the attempt to control the changes we face both within ourselves and in our environment, at our feet. You know, it's us. You can do things. You can change your attitude. You can maybe go on a self-help course. You can read this great new novel with these seven steps. Now, I don't want to minimize the fact that pursuing virtue, especially in the ancient tradition, is very helpful for regulating your mind in accordance with your circumstances. It really is. 
There's nothing wrong about many of those pursuits, but the problem is is that you cannot always control and manipulate even yourself because you're always changing. You see, we ourselves are constantly in flux. And so even though we can change our habits and our attitude to make things better, we will still face the fact that tomorrow morning when I wake up, I'm a different person. What The lessons I learned today may be forgotten three years from now because I'm constantly changing. This is why conflicts in marriage is such a big thing because people don't recognize that the person I marry is changing, including me. And the common dictum in marriages today and reasons for divorce is, well, we know, it's not the person I once knew. Well, of course it's not the person you once knew. You're not immutable. You have to reckon with that. We are constantly changing. And to manage that is incredibly difficult because we don't even understand the complexities of ourselves. So for Paul... One of the key cornerstones of contentment is our faith in Christ. You see, anchoring ourselves somewhere that doesn't change. That's the point. You know, ships have anchors for a reason, right? So that when the storms come and the moorings shift, the ship's anchor will hold that ship in place. Even though on the surface that ship is bobbing around, but the anchor is dragging and keeping it steadfast. And so it is that we need to place ourselves in a place that's going to anchor our souls in something that doesn't change and shift. And this is where Paul gets to in verse 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Why? Why, Paul? Why can you do all things through him who strengthens me? Because guess what? It is him who's placed me in the circumstances. And guess what? He doesn't change. But I want you to note how this verse is connected to the context of contentment in various situations that Paul found himself in, particularly here in Roman prison. Paul is not just saying that he finally came to a healthy understanding of his circumstances and then was able to transcend them by adjusting his attitude. (laughs) That's not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying that he reached contentment by placing his confidence in Christ who called him to this task. He knew his purpose and knew what he was called to. A Christian, you need to very well know what Christ calls you to. When you become a Christian, so that when the storms of life come, you, don't, you aren't swayed by the opinions that are out there. For all those, says Paul, who pursue a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Just know that. The health and wealth, prosperity promises are all fake. They're not rested upon anything that's true. Because you know what? Most of the promises we have in the New Testament is that you're going to suffer. Sorry. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't have joy. This is what the letter of Philippians is all about. It's the letter of joy, right? It's the fact that amidst our sufferings, we can still have joy. We can still have deep contentment and richness and fellowship and relationships. 
That is what the Christian faith holds out. And not just this, but the hope of eternal life to a place one day where there will be no more suffering. And our tears will be wiped away by Christ. And we know that will happen because Jesus was raised from the dead. We just read that this morning in Matthew chapter 27 and 28. He was raised. And so we can have confidence in the promises of God, the promises of one who doesn't shift. And then, if that's not enough, you know what he does? He says, all right, I'm going to give you my spirit to help you out a little more. And he pours his Holy Spirit into our hearts. Paul connects his confidence and deliverance to the Spirit. In, in, in Philippians 1, verse 18 to 21, he says this, Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of, Spirit of, Je- of the Spirit of Jesus, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. <laughs> you see, that he knows the Spirit of Jesus and your prayers. And his own prayers. He has received a supply of one who never runs dry. And that's why he can say, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Him who strengthens me, not me myself, who musters up the courage, who comes to correct understanding of my circumstances, or pursues a virtue. Those things are all good and of themselves, but you've got to understand that the grace of God in the gospel is that he himself regenerates our hearts because we are dead in sins and trespasses and makes us alive with Christ. And now, by grace, we are saved because he's given us faith. And this faith itself is the anchor for our souls in the person who never changes, the promises who are secure. And that's what Paul gets into here. His contentment here is grounded, truly grounded, in the never-shifting promises of God. And the Spirit helps him to trust in him. You see, this is why Thomas Aquinas called faith the first truth. Listed those as three theological virtues that he added to the four cardinal virtues of the Greeks. He called faith the first truth because it's faith itself that produces Hope. It's faith itself that enables us to love. It's faith in God because once we have our faith in the right place, and it doesn't mean how much faith you have, you can have just a little bit of that little bit of faith, just a little grain of sand on a whole beach, and you put that little grain of sand in the right place, and you know what? It's anchored in eternal promises. It doesn't matter how much faith that is. Because it's where it's placed that's most important. And for Paul, it's right here in Christ. So he can face these circumstances with contentment. Because he knows, he knows who it is who's placed in there. 
he also knows, he knows, he knows who it is that's befriended him. <laughs> and he knows who it is that's holding him. All of these things. God is working out his circumstances and his situations for Paul's good and his glory. So I want you, as we consider this this morning and we bring this to a conclusion, I want you to know that you're not going to leave this place unchanged today. You realize that? Yeah, we often pray that, you know. Oh, may, the, may, may we be changed when we leave you. You know what? You're going to walk out here a different person. Every second, you are changing. You are changing. The world around you is going to be different. It's constantly changing, too. Circumstances that come out along your way is going to change you and your perspective of the world. Everything's changing around you. The question is, how do you manage that change? How is it that you control that change? Do you try and seek something within yourself, or do you go to some external self-help source, which is all good and well? Even the virtues, the Greek philosophers and reading of that, these are helpful things sometimes. But what about lasting <laughs> unshifting confidence in something that will anchor you amidst everything that changes so that you know guaranteed that I am secure. Where do you place your confidence is the question I ask. What's your authority? And I want to point out three ways that Paul teaches us to manage our situation. Firstly, consider the value of Christian friendship. And that's Christ's friendship. <laughs> that if you're a Christian, what Jesus said to his disciples in John 15 is true of you. Because you know what? He gave his life for you, just as he did for them. You are my friends. No greater love is there in the world than a man that lays down his life for his friends. You are my friends, says Jesus. If you've been regenerated by the Holy Spirit of God, you've been changed, you've been transformed, you've been renewed, you are his friend. You have a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And Paul said when we're tackling anxiety, remember that we can access this friend because he is near. He is close to us. Why? By virtue of his spirit, he is near. He's your friend. As a result of that, he's brought you into a community of Christians with whom you have a common identity. And these strange people, sometimes you might think, of which you contribute to the strangeness, these people have been changed by the gospel too. And pursuing friendships, deep, true friendships with these people is, is pursuing something that's going to last. Because you know what? You're going to see them all in eternity. <laughs> Develop those. I love it that um, the Bracks have had a fellowship um, grill. I call it Bra. I always refer back to Bra, but grill at their house with s'mores and all that. People can come around and, and just get to know each other. Now it's happening at the Rosales' home 
next Friday, you know, take the opportunity. Those are wonderful, relaxed occasions to get to know one another, develop those friendships, you know. Secondly, don't despise the frowning smile of providence. Don't despise the difficult circumstances or the good times. Now, we're never going to despise the good times, right? Everyone, every one of us is going to say, well, you know, I just wish the good times would last. But don't despise the bad times amidst the good times. And you've got to keep yourself in check in all of those times. The good times can be very subtle in swaying you away from the truth. <laughs> the problem with the good times is that if they're very good and they become very worldly good, that little flicker of flame dies out. Be careful of the good times. Trust Christ to keep you steady. And in the difficult times, understand that you have a faithful friend who seeks your good, who defines true friendship. He, he doesn't need you. Remember? This is, this is Jesus. He doesn't need you. So he's doing it for your good. He saves you for your good. He brings you into his people for your good. And he gets the glory because we will praise him for that. Thirdly, cling to the virtue of faith. It's good to cultivate good habits. There's nothing wrong with that. I love reading on the philosophers. I love reading on the nature of habit, virtue, cultivation of it. How can we improve ourselves? These are good things. Pursue always to, to pursue a good life of virtue and with good habits is, is not a bad thing. But don't put your confidence there because it will fail. Because you will change. Circumstances will change. Things will come along, come along your way, perhaps even this week, that you were never thought would happen to you. You know, I remember receiving a phone call while I was writing and finishing up a paper for seminary that my sister had died in a car accident. You never know what you will face in the week that will throw you. But you have access to a friend who sticks closer than a brother because he's given you his spirit. And his spirit enables you to cry out to your Abba Father. Enables you, even sometimes with words, as Paul says in Romans 8, that we don't even know how to utter. But you have fellowship with the Father, with the Son, by His Spirit. You have been brought into this intimate relationship. True and genuine friendship that cares about your good. Even if you feel no one else does. You know what He does. And He will see it through to the end. Let us pray. Father, help us to have confidence in Christ. The joy of Christian contentment is knowing <laughs> who our friend is. Knowing that he has placed us in our circumstances. And that he's ordering all things for our good and his glory. And that he's given us this gift of faith that he supplies and enables us to persevere.
Help us to glory in him. In Jesus' name, amen.